Well, good evening to you all. You're very welcome. My name is Shamal Hall and the title to the talk tonight is Philosophy and Awareness. And the subtitle is How Aware Are We Really? Now our first question is, what is awareness? Well, it's not attention. There's awareness whether the mind is attending or wandering. Attention belongs to the mind, but awareness is spiritual. It is, in fact, who we are. It is consciousness, witnessing consciousness, which is present here now. And it cannot be denied. Just as existence cannot be denied, nobody can say, I do not exist, or I am not. Likewise, consciousness or awareness cannot be denied. It is not possible to say, I am not aware of X, because you are aware that you are not aware of X, so-called. This awareness is what lights up the whole world. This is what Jesus referred to when he said, you are the light of the world. Because it shines, everything else shines. Just as every individual color in the universe shines because pure light, which is their source, shines. The light in the human eye, the clarity and intelligence in the mind, the love and warmth in the heart are simply awareness or the light of consciousness reflecting in these forms. Without awareness, they would not exist. Awareness shines on and through everything, but remains detached and unaffected by everything. As the Shankaracharya said, the man whom the school put all its questions to, he said, just as the sun shines naturally all around, nourishing and activating every part of the earth and its participants, be they good or evil, pure or impure, but none of the things of the solar system either glorify or defile the sun. The sun is everywhere with its power of light and heat, and yet is untouched by all it shines upon. This, however, is not our experience. We are affected by everything. Good fortune brings happiness to us, and adversity brings us sorrow. Pain and ill health in the body burden us. Doubts plague us. Fear freezes us. So how can this be? If we are this awareness, which is unaffected by anything, well, it's all due to ignorance, an error in the mind. Now, what is life like under ignorance? As said before, our true self is awareness, witnessing consciousness. And this consciousness is reflected in the mind and a false image of the witness is created, known as the ego. Under ignorance, it feels itself to be the real or ultimate experiencer. And the real witness, being totally detached, does not reclaim or oppose this presumption of the false witness to be the experiencer. And unopposed, it becomes constant. Man is thus in a fallen state. He has fallen asleep, fallen asleep to his true self. And we should not be fooled that just because our eyes are open, that we are awake. 
Sometimes we dream with our eyes closed, sometimes with them open, but always asleep to the truth about ourselves. Unless our inner eye, the eye of wisdom, is open, according to philosophy, we are asleep. And unless this error in the mind is removed, unless we know who we truly are, we are not truly awake. We are in the dream of a false existence. And this is why all the great teachers of mankind have insisted on only one thing, awaken. Buddha said, the fool sleeps as if he were already dead, but the master is awake and he lives forever. We have effectively become our minds and foregone our consciousness, our awareness. Becoming mind, our lives have become mechanical. And the mind is so efficient that we are fooled, that we are awake. But it is no more than very refined sleepwalking. And this we call my life. So if it's very limited sleepwalking, you can probably get out of bed, make a banana sandwich, consume it, and go back to bed. But if it's very refined sleepwalking, you can go to school, form a career, get married, rear children, buy a burial plot and die. All in very refined sleepwalking. Only to the degree that we are aware can we be said to be alive. Our eyes may be seeing, but is there anybody behind them? I'm sure we recognize this sometimes when you're talking to somebody, and even though the head may be nodding like one of those nodding dogs at the back of a car, you know there's nobody behind the eyes. Being mindful, that is full of mind, we are interested in things, people, everything external. The mind makes us extrovert. Consciousness takes us inward, deeper and deeper and deeper until we find no thing but our true self. When we are not aware we live in the mind and then life becomes fragmented. Action goes in one direction, thinking in another and feeling somewhere else. We are no longer unified. With lack of awareness comes lack of unity and with lack of unity comes misery. We become an entity at war with ourselves, and life is not lived at the center, but at the periphery, and thus there is no center to our lives. And this sort of life under ignorance, where there is lack of consciousness, is so miserable that we seek to become unconscious. We sleep for eight hours or more, even though we don't need to. We daydream. We lose ourselves in TV and alcohol. And because the mind won't stop thinking, we wish to escape the mind, to escape the misery of our existence. Now the Hebrew root for the word sin means to miss. So you have words like misbehave and misconduct. Now when we are unaware, we go missing. And to be missing is our sin. It's the only sin that man makes, to be missing. 
Under ignorance, the mind is always missing, always in the past or future. In the present, there is no movement, and no movement is no mind. We cannot think in the present. The moment we are thinking, we're in the past. When we see the sun rise, we are in the present. When we think, what a beautiful sunrise it is, we are in the past. Ordinarily, we do not experience things as they are. We project our minds onto them. We do not see or experience our parents, our children, the football match, as they are, but only as the mind evaluates them. We see things that are not there, and we do not see what is there. The mind then creates a false life experienced through its own opinions, thoughts, theories and philosophies. And when unaware, all life is distorted by the mind. It is distorted by what I like, what I do not like, and mainly by what I'm indifferent to. The vast majority of that which is presented to the mind is not allowed to enter it because of our indifference, our lack of interest. And to take a frivolous sort of example, if a man goes to a party, the next day you ask him, what were people wearing at the party? He will say, clothes. And he won't get beyond that. Because he's not interested, he's indifferent. And so the knowledge, although presented to the eyes, doesn't enter. Even that which is allowed in is interpreted according to mood, prejudice, etc., and this is the dream of our life. We are alone in our dreams. Nobody else can enter into our dream because nobody else can have the same dream as we are having. All separation, isolation, loneliness is because of the mind. When we live in the mind, we live alone. Under ignorance, the mind very rarely stops thinking. When two people are talking together, they are thinking of other things. Both are living in private worlds. Mind is private, but in awareness, there's no private world, just the one universal world. For the majority of us, the mind often attempts to do two impossible things. It tries to reform the past, whereas the past is actual, dead, gone or fixed. It has already happened. It is no more and cannot be undone. The past can be reinterpreted, but not changed. The second thing the mind often tries to do is to control the future. And again, this cannot be done because that which is in the future is open not established, full of potentiality. Future is pure potentiality, so it can't be controlled. Until it happens, one can never be certain about it. And between the past and future, man stands in the present, thinking of both these impossibilities, i.e. changing the past and controlling the future. In this way, we waste the present moment. And because so much of our lives is unfinished business, 
Our past is unfinished business. Unfinished, it lives on and invades the present moment and goes further and dominates even the future. The past is carried like a load. Unfinished, it is returned to again and again. Only what is finished is dropped and let go. The mind can only project the known, so the imagined future is simply the extended past. And the mind darting between the past and future finds no rest. And finding no rest, it becomes dull. Exhausted, it fails to reflect its natural intelligence. And life incomplete during the day is continued into dreams at night. And not having slept well at night, it fails to truly connect with the following day, with living. And like a vicious circle, this goes on and on and on. Thoughts lead to actions. And because thoughts become self-perpetuating, actions become self-perpetuating. Once we give ourselves to thoughts, they become stronger. Then they become habitual over time. And becoming habitual, they become second nature. And in effect, they become our first nature. The mind, hardened by these habits, forms grooves and then finds itself unable to act outside these grooves. The habit then lives through us, getting its energy from us. The habit persists now, having an energy of its own. Initially, it was just a thought. We could accept or reject it. However, in the end, it becomes our master. We just have to obey it. The habit forces us to do certain things, even against what we know to be true, good or useful to us. We become the victim of our thoughts. And the more we repeat the habit, the more powerful it becomes. And then we are in the grips of it, imprisoned by it. So if you try to give up anything, let's say you try to give up chocolate. One day you see yourself in the mirror, you see the side profile, you can't deny the shape, and you say, I'm never eating chocolate again. Never, ever, ever. And to give it some force, you announce it to the world, which is a fatal error. You tell everybody, these lips will never taste chocolate again. And three days later, you're at somebody's house and they offer you chocolate, and you say, ah, you would be rude to refuse, right? So one box later... Anyway, we live in a self-imposed prison made up of habits and conditioning. In ignorance, we live in identification. Identification with our thoughts, fears, etc. It is identification that produces anger, not the person in front of you. Then we think we are angry and that we are the anger. With identification, we make everybody else responsible for our state. We are angry because of the wife, the boss, the government. However, nobody else is responsible. And for so long as we believe others are responsible, we are their slaves. People behave in the way they do because they are identified. They have foregone choice and are acting mechanically. 
and accepting responsibility for the state of our body, mind and heart is the first step towards freedom. Otherwise we will always remain a slave because we cannot change the other. We may throw responsibility on the other, but we cannot change the other. You cannot change another human being. This is very disappointing news for most wives, but it is true. People can only change themselves. When identified, we think we act, but in fact we react. By reacting, we are cooperating with the identification. We strengthen it with our attention and support. We may think the anger has gone when it subsides, but it's there, latent, waiting for the next time the button is pushed. And this is why, in a state of identification, nothing is truly resolved. Peace is only surface peace, with all the potentiality of conflict lying underneath the surface. And when reacting, we are like puppets who are having their strings pulled. Somebody gives us an insult, and we react. It is as mechanical as pushing a button. They have pushed our button, and we react. We become angry. It's not action, but reaction. The one who insults us is the manipulator, and we are the manipulated. We are simply functioning as a machine, and in this state of mind we are like an electric light. And people find our buttons, and they turn us on and off at will. Whether it be praise or insult, we are dragged up or down, whether we will it or not. When we get angry, we think we're doing it. But the truth of the matter is that it's been done to us. We rationalize it, justify losing our temper. And this makes us believe that we had choice, that we were the boss of the situation. But we were not. Anger just emerges out of old patterns, out of the past. When it comes, we try to find a current excuse for it. The impulse for it may be present, but the cause of it is in the past. So if you think that the person in front of you is the one who's making you angry, you're blaming the wrong person. Anger is stored in your being from the past. It was somebody in the past who caused you to store the anger. The one in front of you is innocent. They simply provide you with an excuse to be angry, but are not the cause of your anger. Thus, under ignorance, we are the victims of our own minds. And this is why it is said, we have looked for the enemy and we have found it within. All our experience of life is our own responsibility. Nobody makes us happy, and nobody makes us sad. It is all determined by patterns in the mind, patterns produced from our past. Now, what about practices to assist with awareness? Well, the good news is, if you want some good news, the good news is we are already aware. It is our very nature. We can never not 
be aware. However, the mind can acknowledge that awareness or forget it. It is this which determines what is ordinarily called our whole experience of life. I.e., does the body-mind amalgam reflect the awareness which I am and always am, or does it effectively deny it by forgetting it? All the parts of man make up the human instrument. Now, as instruments, they cannot experience the awareness. As the Shankaracharya said, with glasses, one can see clearly, but glasses themselves do not have vision of their own. If it were so, no one would need natural vision or the source which enlightens everything. These are all instruments and everyone needs to experience the consciousness within, the deeper the better. Nicodemus in the Bible asked, how can I attain to the kingdom of God? And Jesus said, unless you die first, nothing can be attained. In fact, unless you are reborn, nothing can be attained. So what is it to die and be reborn? It is to die to the identification with what the mind thinks, especially who it thinks I am. It is to be reborn in awareness, knowing that we are the witnessing consciousness, the subject, and that the mind and its contents are objects under our awareness. And we can never be an object, for who would then be the subject? Now, mind is a bridge between body and awareness, so we do not try to destroy it. Rather, we transcend it. We are said to attain the state of no mind, not when we have killed it, but when we have attained understanding. The cure is the same for all. If 10,000 people fall asleep, they will have 10 thousand individual dreams. Each dream will have its own unique situations and problems. And to get rid of all these unique problems, the cure is the same. Simply become aware. Becoming aware, we wake up out of our dreams and all our problems have gone. So what can be practiced specifically to assist with awareness? Firstly, we can come out of the mind. The world of the mind has to be dropped. One does not change one's job, leave one's wife, give away all our money, whatever little bit you have left, right? We simply come out of the mind and leave our private world of dreams. And to come out of the mind is to be aware. So what does it mean to be aware? Well, as said before, it's not being attentive. When the mind is attentive, it is given to an object. It may be to an object within the mind, or to external objects, like shops or people or traffic, etc. Here the mind cognizes many things, 
but there's still no awareness of oneself. Awareness is self-awareness. Awareness of one's own presence or existence. Whatever is being done, retain that self-awareness. The mind is not to get lost in the activity. Let there be listening and awareness that there is listening. Let there be eating and awareness that there is eating. Awareness is continuous presence. Whatever we are doing or not doing, there needs to be the acknowledgement that we are that which is in presence here right now. We are that consciousness. The second factor to assist awareness is discrimination. And true discrimination is the facility of the mind to differentiate between the eternal and the transient, true and false, etc., etc. When the mind discriminates, it acknowledges the presence of both the reflected light of consciousness, i.e. the awareness, and the object's inner awareness. In other words, it acknowledges the presence of the conscious observer and all that is under observation. We discriminate between the contents of the mind and what lights the mind. That which lights the mind is awareness. It is eternal, ever-present, complete and unaffected. And what is lit up in the mind is transient, limited and a passing show. And to give you a sort of an example, I was attending the end of a philosophy residential in the UK, the final meeting. It was a week-long residential. Anyway, a lady got up and burst into tears. And she said it was the most appalling week of her life. She said it was black, black, black. The whole week without any respite. It was just continually black. So the tears are pouring down her eyes, her face as she says all this. Anyway, what the tutor asked her was, what was it that revealed that black all the time? Something was lighting up the presence of that blackness. Does that make sense? And that was constantly present because she was saying it was black all the time. So the awareness that it was black and dark and miserable was present all the time. That's discrimination. You know the light which reveals the darkness and you know the darkness and you choose the light. Without discrimination you're compelled to think it was only black, black, black. We are not what appears in the mind. And knowing that which we are not leads us to what we are. We then know that we are the awareness and not the objects under observation. And this is our freedom. And there's another stage after discrimination. Once discrimination is established, we become detached from objects of the world, from anger, anxiety, etc., and with this detachment comes the realization that all in truth is one. And on this realization we go free, never to be bound again. 
as the Shankaracharya says, the ultimate aim of discrimination is to acquire the state of complete detachment, realize the self, and experience its completeness or unity. So how is the mind to discriminate? Well, in stillness, the mind naturally discriminates. So one does not practice discrimination. The practice is for the mind to become still. And in that stillness, discrimination operates naturally and all is revealed. The third factor which assists awareness is to do with living in the present. Whenever it is noticed that the mind has wandered to the past or the future, bring it back to the present. And there will be much forgetting. And there is to be no despair and no criticism about this. This is simply wasting more time. The mind will leave the present a million times. So the mind will leave the present a million times. Keep bringing it back. It is only habit that is causing the forgetting and overcoming the habit will take time and effort. On seeing that the mind has wandered, bring it back without comment or fuss of any kind. And if we need to count, count how many times we've brought the mind back rather than how many times it has wandered. The more the mind is brought back, the more it will be possible for us to stay in simple awareness. The intervals between the awareness will get smaller and the dream of our life will be less heavy. When there is thinking, the past is brought into the present and covers it. And in awareness, there's no covering. There's just the present. And here's an interesting question. When there is no past and there is no future, who are you? We are not who we ordinarily think we are. In simple awareness, there is no identity, no ego, no sense of false I. Then there's walking without a walker and acting without an actor. What is required is complete presence now. And most of the time, we're not really here. When we are eating, our minds are elsewhere. You might recognize this. You buy a cup of coffee, you taste the first mouthful. And the next moment, you're staring at an empty cup of coffee. It's not on your trousers and it's not on the floor, so you have to assume you actually drank it. And that's the way it is. When someone is talking to us, we are a million miles away. Then the eating and the listening are mechanical, and there are reactions and not responses, all based on the past. If we can remain simply aware for a few moments at a time, then this will be excellent. So don't think, oh, sure, how could I be aware for 40 years or 50 years, something like that. A few moments would be excellent. If we could manage five minutes of uninterrupted awareness, 
we are not far from the end of all our spiritual labors. Be aware of all actions. Be aware of every gesture of the body. Be aware of every thought in the mind. Be aware of the desires arising in the heart. And take every moment as an opportunity to be aware. And whatever actions are being undertaken, see if they can be undertaken with the mind fully present. And this is very challenging, but not impossible. Then what is the experience is the world as opposed to the world of the mind. Every action becomes complete and the experience is total. Then there is eating or listening and nothing else is happening inside of us. As an Upanishad says, when a wise man walks, he just walks. And when he sits, he just sits. And there's nothing else going on inside of him. And this is the essence of simple living. Then actions, instead of being mechanical and dull, are conscious and bright. They shine and life is transformed. The fourth factor with regard to assisting awareness is effort. Living in awareness is only possible when we put all our energy into it. It is not a part-time occupation, but the fulfillment of human existence, the reason for which we came into this world. That is to apply ourselves ceaselessly until we are fully conscious, fully aware. Now, putting all our energy into it does not mean trying to avoid being identified with the mind. If we try to avoid tripping up, we tend to trip up. Do you ever walk down the stairs with some heavy load and a concern arises in the mind, I could easily trip up, so I must take care? Well, it's a real hazardous journey because you're as close to tripping up as you're ever going to be because of your concern. Putting all our energy into it means that we do not try hard. Instead, we totally relax. When we are relaxed, the mind becomes still. And when the mind becomes still, awareness cannot be denied. So be calm, quiet, and silent within. And the effort is not to change anything. If we try to change, then there will be failure, criticism, repentance, and renewed effort. Effort is required, but it is not to be directed to changing the thoughts or contents of the mind. It is a question of directing the efforts to being alert and not to achieving change. With alertness in awareness, identification cannot continue. We become identified with the situation, thereby creating the problem, and then remaining identified, try to solve the problem. The problem is not the problem. The next time you have a problem, remember that. The problem's not the problem. The problem is identification, and awareness undoes identification. It is the universal key or solution to all our problems. The other way, 
of trying to solve all our problems, well, there are just not enough years in this life to achieve this. We cannot stop thinking, but thinking can stop. If we try to control the mind, we will be dividing it in two. One half doing the thinking, and the other half trying to stop the thinking. Do we recognize that? It will simply drive the mind crazy. It is the equivalent of a dog going in ever faster circles, trying to catch up with its tail. So let all effort be to let the mind become still. The fifth factor is meditation. In order for there to be growth in consciousness or awareness, then meditation is needed. Again, as the Shankaracharya says, so the only recourse for the growth of consciousness is to go behind the stage, or in other words, to meditate. By going into meditation, one recharges oneself with finer energy and comes out with extra energy imbued with consciousness and bliss. And unless this process is given back to the people, unless they are prepared behind the stage inside, which is not known to the world outside, it is impossible to play one's part according to time and place. What meditation does is purify the mind. It brings the meditator to his very center, his very essence, and allows him to abide there. When this happens, everything changes. And as said before, things still arise in the mind, but this does not matter anymore. They do not affect us because they cannot reach our center. It is like the waves on the surface of the ocean while there is the still, peaceful depths below. The thoughts are there, but no longer control us. They simply come and go. And we become like the lotus, which is surrounded by water and at the same time untouched by the water. And the sixth factor is calming the mind. Thinking is active and witnessing or being aware is passive. When there is thinking, there is doing. There is not just seeing. Something is being done with or to the seeing, i.e. thinking. Then the mind is not like a mirror reflecting what is there. Something is being added through the thinking. So everything is distorted and the life that is experienced is the life as projected by the mind. On first seeing a vase, it is innocent seeing and true seeing. Then if there is commentary on the vase, something is imposed on the vase. My knowledge, my values, my past. Now the vase has been changed. Now it is an image in my mind, colored by me. And this commentary closes the mind. And do we recognize all this ceaseless commentary going on in our minds? You know, when you walk down a street, nobody gets by. Gosh, would you look at that hairstyle? And his eyes are too close. He looks boring. All these comments, all the time. 
calming the mind keeps everything open. Cessation of thinking of the commentary is the calming of the mind. With awareness, thinking which produces judgment ceases. We stop judging ourselves, the person in front of us, everybody. Ordinarily, the moment we think of anybody or anything, we judge them. In awareness, everything is seen as it is for what it is. Then there is naming without labeling or categorization, but simply for the purpose of communication. When there's not awareness, the mind fills with thoughts and there is experience of mind. And when there is awareness, thoughts minimize. They are seen as thoughts in awareness and there's no experience of the mind. The thoughts are not seen as ours, but simply as forms in awareness or consciousness. And by simply being aware, control is attained. Mind is a movement in consciousness or awareness. It is a movement that does not and cannot disturb the awareness. But if the belief is, I am the mind, then the experience is of being disturbed. And to overcome this belief, the mind is calmed. And in that deep calm, the truth about myself is known. Then knowing that we are the undisturbed awareness, the thoughts do not disturb anymore, and nothing is wrong anymore. Nothing has to be corrected or changed. For I am that I am, and it is perfect. And calming of the mind is the beginning of awareness. Accept the movements in the mind, but do not get lost in them. And this acceptance leads to a calming or stilling of the mind. And to help with this, an exercise can be practiced every day for 10 minutes. And this is what you do. And it's very simple, and it'll have a profound effect on your day or on the mind. Simply watch the mind. Look deep into the mind, as deep as you can. And looking deep into the mind, wait for the next thought to arise watching to see where it comes from. And when it does arise, let it arise and let it pass. And then looking deep into the mind, watch again for the next thought to arise and where it arises from. And in this way, the mind will become very still. And awareness will be undeniable. Now the very watching is what brings about the change in the mind. So it is not controlling, it's not suppressing, it's just simply watching. And this watching is not the watching of an enemy. It is watching without preference, without judgment, pure, innocent watching. It's not watching for a result, like a stiller mind. It's just watching. And if there is to be feeling in the watching, then let it be watching with love, with deep reverence. And in this watching, the mind will become stiller and there will be gaps in the thoughts. And in the gaps between the thoughts, there will be the pure experience of awareness. And these gaps will deepen and lengthen 
and innocence will be restored to our nature. Now these gaps are like small pools of silence in which we rest in the peace of ourselves. And when the thoughts arise again, it will not be as if something wrong has happened, because then we will see that the peace, the awareness is always present, always complete, always undisturbed, whether there are thoughts or not. Then we will not only like the intervals, but we will love the all. And this is freedom, freedom to be oneself, whatever is happening. So we do not become attached to the gaps, the peace, the freedom, but simply remain free, enjoying that freedom which is not a state. And with awareness, there will be clarity. The mind then conducts awareness or consciousness and stops absorbing it or distorting it. It reflects our essential nature. And with this slowing down of the mind, energy is both conserved and generated. And this allows for a larger life, i.e. a larger expression or manifestation of our true nature. So what is it like to live in awareness? Well, to live in awareness is to live fully and efficiently. The Shankaracharya said, the subtler the level of consciousness, the greater and finer will be the available energy to deal with the physical realm more efficiently because the subtle activates the physical. And with awareness, the body will become more graceful. It will be more relaxed, more attuned, brighter. A sense of well-being will pervade it and unnecessary movement will fall away. Because of awareness, identification with the contents of the mind lessen. No longer attached, tensions in the body go. If the body relaxes, we become aware. And if we become aware, the body relaxes. They are inseparable. In the West, we are fond of analyzing. We want to understand the contents of the mind. And these are the equivalent of the clouds in the sky. Analyzing goes into the problem and tries to solve the problem from within. The East is more interested in awareness or witnessing, i.e. that which reveals the contents of the mind rather than the contents themselves. And this is represented by the sky and not the clouds in it. And rather than entering the problem, we transcend the problem. And transcending the problem, the problem becomes a situation. It has been depersonalized. And becoming a situation, it can be dealt with. In awareness, the conditionings in mind, which ordinarily dominate, do not dominate. Even if presented, they are not granted credibility. In awareness, freedom which is ever available is now availed of. If thought is required, then it arises. If it is not needed, then it does not arise. And this is the simplicity of our true self, and the mind just reflects its own source, the self. In awareness, the human instrument is capable of responding fully to the needs of life. 
awareness watches the body, mind and heart and in that watching the three become one functioning together perfectly. The man is no longer at war with himself and the human instrument reflects fully his essential nature. Clarity reigns and it is blissful. Death no longer holds any fear for us. We know that when death comes we will witness that also, completely unaffected. The body will drop off just as we cast off our clothes at night when going to bed. The body experiences pleasure, the mind happiness, and the awareness or consciousness bliss. So when there is awareness, there is bliss. With awareness we are fully present, everything is observed, actions are conscious, and thus anger does not manifest as anger is mechanical. In awareness, we do not fall in and out of love. We are love and live in love. No longer is it us and objects. Now all has become one. There is no other. There are no enemies. And all the dialogue in the mind, all the commenting, judging and condemning, all that falls away. The creation goes on. Our humanity continues to function. Nothing disturbs anymore. And gone are goals, purpose, striving, ambition. We live as ourselves. In awareness, there is no sin because in the presence of light, there cannot be darkness. Then this life truly reflects who we are in every gesture, every action, thought and feeling. The past and future have no more hold. They may present themselves, but only as images in the mind. And like when we understand the mirage, we will no longer seek to satisfy our thirst in illusions or images. Once we have known awareness, then we will not swap it for anything, because we will have found limitless bliss. We will have found the pearl of great price, and in fact will swap everything for it. The conscious man acts in the moment. The situation is seen for what it is and the response is full and appropriate because he's clean like a mirror. His actions are born out of his awareness and not his conditioning. And when actions take place from awareness, then they are complete. There's no burden and everything that comes is fresh. Life is spontaneous instead of rehearsed or mechanical. Whatever happens leaves no trace in us, like writing our name in water. So we retain innocence, and like children, enter the kingdom of heaven. Whatever happens is enjoyed. Preference and aversion, attraction and repulsion dissolve, and love for all remains. In awareness there is no division, just unity and bliss. So to conclude, as Lao Tzu says, when someone listens to my teaching without the mind, he becomes enlightened. If someone listens to my teaching through the mind, then he finds his own explanations. 
to live in awareness is to realize the self. And the Shankaracharya describes it as follows. This is the stage of complete unity in which there is no differentiation between the self and non-self. There is only one sovereign and one law and everything is related to one. This state of Turiya, which is awareness or consciousness, is experienced in two ways. One is internal and the other is external. When the individual dives deep within, then his associations and confrontations, engagements and relations come to a stop. And he, being one within, enjoys this bliss and consciousness. When he rises from this deep state and comes to the awakened state in the world, he comes out of the ocean of bliss and consciousness and there is abundance of freshness pious thoughts, deep and kind look in his eyes. He's never in a hurry. There is no excitement or agitation in his movements. And he always remains placid and pleased. All that he does goes with a natural rhythm and according to time. He loves everyone. And in return he gets love and devotion from anyone who works for him or comes in contact with him. Thus everyone loves him and works with affection for him. Even the so-called enemy becomes friendly. He's always with bliss and has compassion for everyone and has great powers to face up to or correct any situation. The wave of love keeps on flowing through him. This state of complete fulfillment is our birthright. And it is a crime against our humanity not to avail of it. So are we going to avail of it? Thank you. So, what would you like to raise? Everything that you said, I agree wholeheartedly with what you were saying. You're in a small minority in this room. <laughs> the thing that you said was about forgetfulness, and it never occurred to me about the importance of forgetfulness. In that forgetfulness, the memory goes down, is that right? Yes, absolutely. And the importance of the memory is that when the awareness brings the memory up, would that be right? The awareness doesn't actually do anything. We want to say bringing the memory up. It is the mind that remembers. The mind remembers and the mind forgets. The awareness does nothing. It simply watches the mind remembering and it watches it forgetting. And then what brings the memory into play? What brings the memory into play would be a number of factors. One is pain can do it. So that in absolute desperation, in a desire to get away from the pain or the misery, the mind turns its back on whatever it was or it turns to something and that can assist memory. Also, good company. So if you're in the company of a wise man or a woman, they remind you of your true self, which you have forgotten about. 
They inspire you to be yourself. But it's all done in the mind. All the forgetting and all the remembering is in the mind. The awareness or the consciousness simply watches. So all the exercises that has been recommended is all for the mind? All for the mind, yes, absolutely. And the mind then becomes strengthened? It's a bit like this, that when you were at children's school, you would have been given, say, mathematics. You would have been given various exercises or sums to do. And the idea was, as you practiced more and more and more, there would be less and less forgetting. So let's say on a Monday, early on, you might have remembered that seven sevens were 49. On a Tuesday, you could have thought it was 243. It wouldn't have been established in the mind. But what happens is, when the mind remembers again and again and again in experience, one day it understands. And when it understands, it can't forget. So this mind cannot forget that seven sevens are 49, because it's now understood. That knowledge, instead of being a piece of information in mind, is now established in being. So that's the way it works. Thank you. Okay. Yes, there's a lady at the back there. Living in the present and not allowing no self-criticism. But surely self-criticism can bring you to an awareness of whether it's actually real or not real. How would you see that? Well, I'm taking that you think self-criticism as being negative. So you're not allowed that as such if you want to be fully aware but in order sometimes for us to be fully aware, we have to realize what way we are thinking. So self-criticizing ourselves or an action or something that we've done can possibly make us more aware. Well, the counter-argument would be that neither criticism nor praise help awareness. All that's required is that one is aware of what goes on in the mind. So whether it be praise or criticism is not the relevant factor. The relevant factor is that you are observing it rather than you think you are it. For example, when the mind is confused, it is possible to say, I am confused. It's also possible to say there is an awareness of confusion in the mind. That awareness is not confused because it's aware of the confusion. It is very important that the mind is under awareness because it then, in a way, self-corrects. It's a bit like this. If you're in a dream, you can take the wrong turn. If you're awake, you take the correct turn. So it's very important that the mind is under observation. But self-criticism or criticism doesn't help at all. All that criticism does is reduce you below who you are. So, for example, a very young child is not capable of criticizing itself. Can't do it. Little two-year-olds don't say, I'm useless. It's only their older brothers and sisters who tell them that they're useless, right? And just take it at a physical level, a very young child cannot think itself ugly, you know, physically less than beautiful. And that's why a young child, when it looks itself in the mirror, sees perfection. 
when you and I look in the mirror, different words spring to mind. <laughs> but the child doesn't criticise, cannot criticise, and it would be very useful if we didn't criticise, because to criticise is to tell you that you're less than who you are. Now, behaviour has to be modified. Behaviour can be improved, and the workings of the mind and the workings of the heart and the workings of the body can be improved, but not that which is aware of it. It will be aware of decline and it will be aware of improvement, but it itself does not change. To evaluate is fine. Criticise is a different matter. And just if you take criticising another, when you criticise another, you separate yourself from that. So when I say, you are a lazy pig, I'm actually saying two things. I'm saying you are a lazy pig and I'm not. I'm standing above you and putting you down there. So criticising does two terrible things. It elevates one person beyond their true stature and it puts another person below their true stature. So both are now in the wrong position. But to evaluate a situation, to say that more care could have been taken there, that's fine. That's a true statement. Does that help at all? Yeah. All right. Yes, anybody else? This gentleman here. Thank you. And again, I must say I enjoyed your talk before the break. I was thinking particularly about the beneficial elements of greater awareness, particularly yeah. the practical benefits, of, say, in relation to improving relationships, either personal relationships or business type of relationships where maybe there may be pressure to get something done or, or, or maybe just the personal relationships. The greater level of awareness and consciousness, how exactly or can you give examples or of how the awareness will help improve those sort of things, or I presume it does help to improve relationships. Yes, if you take examples of those who would be classified as being aware, people like Jesus or Buddha or Krishna, bar a few people, they seem to have enjoyed excellent relationships. <laughs> you know, uh, and in the few cases where they didn't, that was the problem with the other person rather than themselves. <laughs> so... Perhaps if I would maybe give, it, say, a business example yes. where there could be pressure to achieve something, a team has to pull together or there is a contractual type relationship where either side is wary of the other. In that type of environment, how does the fully conscious type aware person, how do they both achieve practical objectives and retain the, the state of bliss? Yes. First of all, you never accept pressure. Why would you accept pressure? somebody offered you a glass of arsenic, you wouldn't accept it. So if somebody tries to offer you pressure, one wouldn't accept it in reason. All right? I'm going to just take a few situations now. Let's say you identify with being a professional man. You see yourself, I'm a professional, I'm an engineer or an accountant or something like that. You might find yourself a little bit challenged talking to people who are not professionals. Tradespeople might just cause a little bit of a problem because they're not professional. I'm a professional, they're not a professional. Then if they're not tradespeople, they're labouring people, then I have even greater difficulty. I don't know how to talk about bricks, so what do I talk about? If you have an identification, you will separate yourself from everybody else. You'll be different than them. You'll be Irish, male, professional. Then you might be talking to female, Spanish, non-professional 
And now you've got to find linking points, like the love of Bacardi and Coke or something like this. Right? What we do is, ordinarily, we form an identity, because we think I have to be somebody, so I'm going to form an identity, but then we find we're all on our own. So now we try to form relationships with other identities, which are definitely different than mine. So we look for meeting points in the other person's separate identity. And we do this at a party or a business meeting. You're introduced to somebody and you say, and where do you live? Because that gives away a lot. You know, unless it's a mixed neighbourhood. <laughs> right? And you look at their shoes and their tie, you see if you can find a label or anything that gives away something about the person. And you might ask, what do you drive these days? Are all these sort of questions. And what you're trying to do is to find meeting points. Now, if the person says they're a nuclear physicist, you think, God almighty. Uh, and you start talking about gardening or something like that. So that's the way we do it. Now, in a business situation, don't be different than the others in the room. What happens is we take a side. This is what the Russians and the Americans used to do. They used to take sides. And they could never meet. Or Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland, the same thing. So you never take a side. Simply present yourself at the meeting. Present yourself as yourself. Then you find you're no different than others. And when you're not different than others, they won't fear you. And I've used this example. It's an exaggerated, silly example. But you're lying in bed on your own. And you wake up to feel this hand crawling up your body in a menacing sort of way. And it starts to scratch your throat vigorously. You'll be full of fear until you realise it's your own hand. <laughs> Once it's your own, no fear arises. So when it is yourself or you see yourself in the other, there's no fear, there's no division, there's no separation. What happens in business? There is so much trying to represent my side. Well, if you're on this side of the table, go over to the other side. Always go on the side where the so-called other person sits. And meet them where they are. And join with them. In any good business deal, there is a good profit. In all economic situations, or business situations, for a transaction to take place... There are four values. And if there aren't the four values, then the transaction can't take place. And if you can remember this, you'll see why business deals didn't happen and why they do happen. So we just make it very simple. You going into a shop to buy a newspaper. And we make it the Irish Times, and I think it's currently two euro. So we just keep it very, very simple. Now, when you go into a newsagent, which are two euro, to buy the Irish Times you value the Irish Times more than the two euro. Or else you couldn't part with it. If you only valued the Irish Times at one euro eighty, you'd keep your two euro and let the newsagent keep the paper. But in fact, you think it is better to have the Irish Times than the two euro. So there are two values which you hold. Now, the newsagent has to hold the opposite values. If he actually values the Irish Times more than the two euro, he'll tell you to keep your two euro. But in fact, what he values is the two euro more than the Irish Times. And because he does, he takes your two euro and gives you the Irish Times. 
They're the four values. The thing to do is, in any business situation, find out what your values are and find out what the other's values are. When you find the four values, then you can always do a deal. And there's profit for both. When you walk out of the news agents with your Irish Times, you think you have profited. I've got something worth more than two euro. And the news agent <laughs> thinks he has profited because he's got something worth more than the Irish Times which he had. He's got the two euro. There's always profit in any deal. And there's sufficient for everybody. The key is to find the four values. That's the way it works. Thank you. Thanks. By the way, all recessions are caused when that fails. Let's say you were selling your house. It's because you value your house now more than the potential buyer. We can't get the four values. And it's only when the four values are restored that economies start to flourish again. So it's actually not a very complicated thing, as they say. Recessions are not very complicated, nor are there solutions. Yes, anybody else? Yes. Apart from the mind and what's going on in the mind, can things present in the heart as well? So, for example, if the mind is in the present, are there still things that need to be resolved in the heart? Can, for example, people present in the heart? For example, feelings and things present themselves yes. and it seems to be out of control of the mind. The mind didn't go there exactly. Absolutely. Well, sometimes in philosophy when the word mind is used, it means mind and heart. There isn't a, a differentiation between the mental world and the emotional world. What we could say about the heart, that's where we hold that which is most valuable of the mental world. They're stored in our heart. And because memory is associated with the heart, then things which go back a long, long time can be held in the heart. And they present themselves at all sorts of situations. You can receive flowers on your birthday and it reminds you of your granny's funeral, who you haven't thought about for 37 years. But the flowers were the same colour as the flowers on her coffin and, and she left you out of the will. And, <laughs> and really, I've never been loved as much as my brothers and sisters and life is terribly unfair. And then you find all sorts of issues are drawn out from one daffodil. <laughs> all that happened was somebody gave you a daffodil and now you think you're unloved. <laughs> so, there are two ways to do this. One is to resolve those issues. And in the vast majority of cases, that's what you'd say to people. They need to be resolved. And they're normally resolved through the application of reason to them. So, you can examine them and dissolve them. And the other way is simply to realise that they have nothing to do with you. It's only when things are seen to be personal that they affect us. Now, I've told this before, and it's a silly little incident from one of the Inspector Clouseau films. Remember the Pink Panther and all those films? You have to be of a certain age now to have enjoyed these films when they came out first anyway. But Peter Sellers played the part of Inspector Clouseau. And he was an absolute bumbling twit of a detective. And he spoke English but with a very pronounced French accent because he was meant to be a French detective. So then he's in this hotel and there's a very large lady at the reception area with a dog, a little dog, you see. And Inspector Clouseau goes up to her and he says, does your dog bat? And she said, no. So he leant down to pet the dog and it took a bit out of him. 
And he says, I thought you said your dog didn't bat. She says, that's not my dog. (laughs) The point about it is, if it's not your dog, it doesn't bother you. Right? And there's a great lesson in life there. When you think they're your feelings, then they're a burden to you. I'll just take one of the more polite sounds that a baby makes. Take a baby belching. Do you think it's embarrassed? (laughs) Now, we get embarrassed because we think we're making the sound. Well, the baby's not making the sound. The body is just producing a certain rumbling effect. That's all it is. The baby doesn't take it personally. It's watching or listening to it just as much as you are. But we think we are the maker or the owner of that sound. We think we're the owner of the feelings, but the feelings belong to the heart. We think we're the owner of the thoughts, but the thoughts belong to the mind. We think we're the owners of the sensations, but they belong to the body. The ultimate thing then, so, is to decide who you are. And if you decide you are awareness or consciousness, then you realize that all these things are simply happening and they're not yours. And not being yours, they cease to affect you. And the way the Shankaracharya put it is, it's like if a man dies intestate, i.e. without a will, what happens is his wealth goes to the state. Is that okay? If you do not claim your sensations, thoughts and feelings, they simply return to the universe. Let's say there are particular feelings which arise in your heart. The only reason they keep arising is because you keep claiming them. If you didn't claim them, they'd go off. It's a bit like if you keep feeding a stray dog, he's going to keep turning up. If you stop feeding him, he'll go off to somewhere else. Well, it's exactly the same with all those thoughts and feelings. They arise in our minds and hearts, we claim them, and so they keep on coming back. The secret is not to claim them. Simply observe them. It's very interesting, if you take something like anger, if you observe the anger in your mind-heart, you can't be angry. There's just anger manifesting. And because there's nobody who lays claim to it, it just begins to lie down or dissolve. So that's the ultimate way. And the other way, then, is to examine them in reason. What you'll find is, whatever you claim, you will either undervalue or overvalue. So, if a little child claims a teddy, for example, he or she can't think they have the right to do anything to it. So they cut off one of its ears and they stab it with the scissors and all sorts of things. Because it's mine and I can do whatever I want to with it. Or else we overvalue it. We buy a new car and you come back and you find a quarter inch scratch on the driver's door. And you think, society has crumbled. (laughs) You know, they should bring back the whip. What's that play? The Isle of Man. Don't they whip them still there? We should bring it back here. And everybody should do two years in the army to make decent human beings out of them. Now, if you see a half-inch scratch in somebody else's car, you think it's just a half-inch scratch. What's a half-inch scratch? What are you getting upset about? (laughs) So once you personalize something, you must lose the value of it. And this is what we're doing all day long. We're overvaluing and undervaluing. So we've got nothing in its proper perspective.
And that's a terrible burden. A terrible, terrible burden. When you see everything in its proper perspective, then you're free of it. And again, I've used this simple example before, but if you happen to be sort of, let's say, sitting on a seat outside Stephen's Green, if there is such a seat, but anyway, Stephen's Green, and you see this car going around, and it's gone around now four times, Stephen's Green, and it's very evident that the owner is looking for a car park space. And you see, and let's make it a woman, and she's absolutely furious, and she's thinking about withholding her taxes and all sorts of things, because there's not enough car park spaces. And there's a little baby in the back seat. What's he doing? Nothing. He's just like this. <laughs> you know? Babies don't get frustrated going around Stephen Green four times. They don't take anything personally. They don't overvalue anything or undervalue anything. Things are the way they are. A baby, say it drops its bottle and the bottle starts to drip onto the new suede pink carpet which you have just bought. It watches. And then it might put its finger in just see how big a stain you can make by rubbing the milk in. It can't value anything. Now it actually values everything so it can't value anything. And then we teach it all these false values. That stain-free carpets are very important things to happiness. <laughs> right? Our car park spaces on the first time around Stephen's grave. And it was all free of that. So it can be useful to look at all of that and see well, what are all, the, all these values that I've taken on? What is it that makes me miserable? And is it reasonable? I can get up in the morning and go to the uh, car and it's raining a bit or something like that. And you miss the keyhole and the key drops into a puddle. And you think, life is against you. The whole universe hates me. I have to bend the whole way down, at least four feet, to pick up that key. And it's so unfair. As you drive in, you see all other people putting keys into their doors, and none of them are dropping any of them. Why does it have to happen to me? But that's the way it is. We're doing this all the time. There's a story about this lady whose son or daughter died and she was absolutely grief-stricken. She just thinks it's just so horrendous that this has happened and so unfair. So she goes to the Buddha and she says to him, will you bring, I think, let's say, make it a son, will you bring my son back to life? And he says, I will. If you can find a household which has never experienced any tragedy. So she goes to the nearest house and she asks them. They say, well, yes, granny died two years ago. Another one, the dog got run over. All sorts of things. She goes around house to house to house. And suddenly the realization is that there is nothing special about her loss. That that which is born must die. And if you have parents, they will die, etc., etc., etc. And then now, realizing that there's nothing special about this incident in her life, but that it's a universal phenomena, she's relieved of her grief. We take everything so personally. We think it's all so special. And it's not. There's nothing personal in this universe. When the dog chases the cat, it's not personal. <laughs> the cat knows it even though he runs. <laughs> he knows it's not personal. For the Mafia, it's not personal when they take you out. 
There's nothing personal. When somebody shouts at you, it's never personal. Imagine that. Say somebody is mad, and you know that they're mad. They have what we would call a mental problem, which would include most of us. But anyway, they have, they have a mental problem. And their mental problem means that they shout at everybody. And they shout at you. Would you take offence? Not at all. But if you're singled out to be shouted at, then you take immense offence. That's the way we're doing. We're taking everything personal. And there's nothing personal. Everything is happening and nothing is personal. So that's it. Okay. Anybody else? Do you not think fear could possibly be a good thing? Because if a child sees water and they can't swim, they don't see fear. Yes. But if we see water and we can't swim, we will see a certain amount of fear. Yes. So is it, in itself, is it not a guide? It is, but it wouldn't be necessary. It's not necessary to be afraid of water. It would be much better to understand that rivers and things like that can carry your body away and therefore you can drown and that's not particularly useful. When you don't understand, then it's fear. For example, you take driving. Has the point system, the introduction of the point system, has that modified your driving at all? Very good. <laughs> right. So what has happened there is the fear of getting points has produced, let's say, a modified behaviour. That's what's happened here. Out of fear of getting points, I have slowed down. But I could have slowed down out of understanding of how to drive. So if there can't be understanding then let there be fear. This is why, again, in the Bible it says, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Now, it's the beginning. Because out of fear, you might be induced towards good behaviour. That's a useful start, but it's a terrible end. To start, if there can't be understanding, let there be good behaviour produced by fear. But not at the end. Everything in this universe has a useful purpose. So one should make use of it. But it doesn't mean it's ultimate. Understanding is much better than fear. But if a person can't understand, well, then we have to give them penalty points. <laughs> Cards have been in existence for 80 or 90 years and there's been every ad in the world showing bits of bodies splattered against windscreens and all sorts of things. There's been all sorts of pleas and remember your neighbour, drive with care. Very clever wordplay to help us drive properly. So if in the end we're not going to get all these messages, then right, it's penalty points and we'll take your licence. But it's the last resort. The highest way to make a decision is out of love or out of reason. That's the highest. If you can't love in that moment or reason doesn't come to you, then the next best is virtue. Do it for virtue's sake. If virtue doesn't come to you, well then do it for duty's sake. So, it's me mother, and I will bring her shopping. <laughs> I don't want to bring her shopping, but anyway, I will do it. And if you can't rise to duty, then let it be fair. She, <laughs> she might cut me out of the well. <laughs> so the right thing is done 
you see the other brothers always bringing their shop in and you think, <laughs> fear's the least. But it has its value. It really is there only to stop bad behaviour. Whereas understanding, reasoning and love will lead to good behaviour. So one is simply a deterrent or a break on traits which you find it difficult to control. But ultimately, one needs to go above fear. Is that reasonable? Yeah. All right. I was just thinking there during your lecture, would you agree that to be aware and uh, use that awareness and all, that the first thing you want is an open mind? Absolutely. I was surprised you didn't mention that, you know, because if you haven't an open mind, you couldn't be aware of anything. And I know some excellent people now, and they have one idea, shut shop. And they won't change it. So I think to be aware, the first requisite is to have an open mind. Would I be right in that? You are right. I may not have mentioned it directly, but when the mind is calm and still, it is open. It's not possible to have a still, shut mind. You know, it's a bit like if you want to shut your fist and you want to shut it really tight, like a person who has one idea and one idea only in life. If you want to keep your fist really tight, it won't be calm. It'll make it be full of tensions. So if you relax your hand, it will naturally open out. If you relax the mind or calm the mind or still the mind, it naturally opens. When it opens, then there is cognition of a much bigger circle. So let's say you were a very fixated politician you may wish to only represent a portion of the population. But if you had a still and open and peaceful mind, you would be aware of the needs of the entire population. You wouldn't represent a segment of the population. And if your mind became stiller again, you'd stop being only an Irish man or an Irish woman, and you'd become more of a human being, and you'd become aware of the needs of other nations and etc etc so you're absolutely right it's very important to not reduce the mind to a single idea and we often do this we get very fixated about things if you could think of the mind as a great big container if it's only got one thing in it then that one thing must be very precious very very precious so you'd be very loath to let it go. So let's say you have one idea in your mind and one idea only. Then it'll be a very precious idea for you. If somebody tries to prove to you that it's wrong, your entire life is under attack. So you're going to defend it even if you know it's wrong. Because to lose it will be to lose everything. Whereas if you've got a million ideas, and somebody says to you, by the way, number 990... 1,807 is actually wrong. Say, oh gosh, thanks. And you're delighted that the one that was wrong was removed from you. The whole thing is always to live in a very big world. So let's say man lives in a very small world in terms of love, so he only loves a few people, and we make it a male, and he only loves his wife and a few children and a dog. Now even if the dog dies, he's heartbroken. But if you love thousands and millions, 
and billions. Well then, people are born and people die. They don't become less valuable, because if you love someone, they are valuable to you. But your life doesn't come to an end when they pass away. Because you've still got, whatever, six and a half billion to love. And that's the secret, always live in the big world. And so if you take uh, Jesus' message to love thy neighbor as thyself, that was what it was, it was an invitation to live in a big world. It wasn't that Jesus favored neighbors. He didn't come into this world so that neighbors would be taken care of. He was interested in the one who loves the neighbor. He was giving a, a message for perfect happiness. So, anyway, you're right. Yes, anybody else? This gentleman here. He said just that the problem is not the problem. Yes. But just to take maybe an extreme example yes. of somebody, and just let's assume you're told tomorrow you have terminal cancer. Up to that, your life was, okay, small difficulties, but you're, you'd regard yourself as a happy person. So just assume then you're told by the doctor, look, I have bad news for you. You have X number of months to live. That's the problem. How can you say then that that's not the problem? It's not the problem. It's not the problem? No. Terminal cancer is not a problem. What is a problem is believing that you are only a physical entity and that the death of your body would be a terrible thing. Now, have you ever changed your car? Yeah. Was it terrible? The change? Yeah. No. No. Got a brand new one. Later model, quadraphonic stereo, bigger engine, all that sort of stuff. If you were only ever going to have one car and that was it, you'd be terrified as it rusted away. Okay? Death is terrible for us because we don't know our own eternality. Not knowing it, death terrifies us. We presume it to be non-existence. When it's not, it's a change of state. There's a language in India, the spiritual language of India, called Sanskrit. And I can't remember the Sanskrit word for death. But translated, it means major change. That's all it means. Major change. So we have little changes, like we change our clothes, we change our career, we change school, we change house. And death is a major change. It's not something off the Richter scale. It's just a major change. The problem is our beliefs. Let's say you were a deep Christian, a really deep Christian, with not only a profound belief in Christ and his message and a life in the hereafter, but an actual understanding of it, way beyond belief. And somebody told you that you had terminal cancer. So the choice for you is within the next six months you can go to eternal bliss or we can find a cure for you and for the next 30 years you're going to have to clear off that mortgage and keep doing the grass and a million other things. Now if you really believed that on the death of the body you were going to eternal bliss, your death would be a marvellous thing. So you'll find that the problem is our beliefs. We think that death is a terrible thing. We think birth is a wonderful thing. So when somebody has a, a baby born into the family, we send them a congratulations card. When somebody dies in the family, we'd never send them a congratulations card. We send them condolences. We say, oh, I'm sorry for your loss. Now, how do you know that birth is a wonderful thing? 
And how do you know that death is a terrible thing? To say that birth is a wonderful thing, it would have to be better than from where you were previously. How do you know that this isn't like an open prison? Earth is like an open prison. And that, I don't know, for whatever reason, you've been sentenced for 80 years to live somewhere around Tullamore, which is a horrendous punishment for a human being. <laughs> Most try to escape. <laughs> so, how do you know it's not an open prison? And now this is told humorously, but when a baby is born, everybody around the baby is grinning like a Cheshire cat, and the baby's crying its eyes out. Now, what about the death scene? Everybody around the person dying is crying their eyes out. How do you know the one who isn't dying is saying, <laughs> goodbye? So we don't know. The problem is our thinking. If we get our thinking right, then you know whether there's a problem or not. Do you ever think you had a problem when you hadn't got a problem? And you suffered the problem even though the thinking was erroneous. Like, do you ever think you had an illness when you didn't have one? You suffer it as if you had it. Thinking is the problem. And what we need to understand is that if we thought correctly, whatever that might be with regard to death, then maybe terminal cancer wouldn't be a bad thing at all. It would be like coming up in front of the parole board and being told, we're letting you out. It's just your thinking. I mean, a cynic might say that's delusional. Absolutely. I could equally say that somebody who's afraid of death, that's delusional. There's not one sage, no Buddha, no Christ, no Krishna, no saint from the Christian tradition, no sage from the Indian tradition has ever said, my advice is be afraid of death. Every one of them has said the opposite. Now why do all the sages say this? Why does the Bible say, I think it's in one of the Psalms, oh, oh death, where is thy sting? Why does it say that? All the great scriptures say that death is nothing. So, how come the sages get so much right, but they get it wrong about death? They all make the same mistake when it comes to death. I personally am not willing to put my mind up against Christ's Buddhas, Krishnas, and all these people and say, they got it wrong and I've got it right. There's a minor degree of humility in this being and a considerable doubt as to whether I have got it right. In a situation like that, it's not a matter of either being cynical to what I've just said or accepting it. Both are a waste of time. Acceptance is the Pied Piper type scenario and we don't want that. And cynicism is not much use either. What is required is real inquiry. Is it possible to discover what is true? Do we actually have to wait until death happens, or can it be discovered beforehand? Now, what the wise say is you can discover. You can discover now, while alive, whether you're eternal or not. Say you were going away for a weekend, and it rains one of the days. You might come back and say, it was spoiled. The weekend was spoiled, because it was one out of two days. What happens if you're eternal? Is one day's rain such a terrible thing in eternity? 
What difference does it make in eternity? So when we get the perspective wrong, then things become problems. I remember when I was a young boy, we used to live down in Wexford and we came back up to Dublin and the people we visited, one of them gave me a half crown, which was enough to buy 30 one-penny toffee bars, right? <laughs> which was the equivalent of eternal bliss in heaven. And I took it out of my pocket about 50 times and rubbed it and thought about all my chewing that was <laughs> yet to unfold. And I was fiddling it with it in my pocket. I must have pressed it so hard I actually created a hole in the pocket. And I lost the half a crown. I thought my life had come to an end. I thought there was no God in heaven who could allow such an injustice, <laughs> right? That I could never be happy again. That all my wealth had been taken away. All that sort of stuff. Now, since then, I have lost more than half <laughs> on lots of things, particularly business ventures. And that experience has never come back because the perspective is now different. So we may find that a lot of our experience of problems is our perspective. It can be a day and you're in a rush or something like that and you want to go into a particular building and you can't find a car park space within 100 yards. You think, this is awful. You're so angry that there aren't less cars on the road and more car park spaces. And another day, you'd enjoy the walk if it was 500 yards. So it's very important when you and I experience a problem, the first thing we should examine is the state of our mind and heart. Or if our mind is closed down and fixated, like this gentleman was saying, or if our heart is hardened or small, Rather than tackling the problem with a narrow mind and a hardened heart, why not first of all allow the mind to be still and calm and let the heart be open and generous and then look at our problem? And then you might find it's different. It's not a problem at all. It's just something you have to deal with. Again, has anybody ever come to you and said, oh, I have a terrible problem, terrible, terrible problem, and they lay it out in front of you and say, oh, sure, that's not a problem. All you have to do is the following. Do you ever do that? Yeah. yeah. So, would they say to you, I just don't care? What you'll find is it depends on the state of the person looking at the situation. So, that's what I would say. Yes, anybody else? The 10 minute exercise to observe the mind, is that really sort of to observe the discursive mind? which yes. I kind of have a lot of trouble with myself. Is Fine. that what it is really? It is. Yeah. Because what you're watching effectively is for the movements in the mind, which is the discursive mind, the lower aspect of mind, which does the thinking and has opinions and speculations and all that sort of thing. When you were a little boy, I'm sure you misbehaved on one or two occasions anyway. At least. <laughs> At least, right. Okay. It may be that when your father came into the room, you suddenly became well-behaved. There you were throttling your little brother. And your father came into the room, and suddenly you started rubbing your little brother's neck. <laughs> All right? Now, your father wouldn't have had to say anything. By mere presence alone, your behavior was modified. 
And if you remember, if you were messing around on the streets and a Garda came into the vicinity, your behaviour would be changed. You didn't have to do anything, you didn't have to produce handcuffs, anything like that at all. Your behaviour changed. Now, it's a bit like that. That when we call it the higher aspect of the mind, the intellect looks deep into the mind. It's as if the discursive mind behaves itself. Not out of fear, not out of suppression, not with controlling, but just with that conscious presence. It seems to not waste energy. I don't know if you've ever had the experience that you're telling a story to somebody and are not really listening to you. So you can say the fish was at least that size and it took 18 hours non-stop to get him out of the water. If the person starts to listen to you and says, what size was the fish actually? You say, well, actually it was that size. And they say, was it really that size? You say, well, actually, it was that size, <laughs> right? <laughs> that literally, when somebody really attends to you, it's very hard to lie or exaggerate or misbehave or whatever. The story that you're telling becomes more and more honest and more and more real just because somebody's listening. Well, it's like that. That's what this exercise does. If you do practice it, you'll find that it brings about a tremendous stillness in the mind and gives you a great confidence because you're not doing anything. It's all been brought about simply by watching. So. Would it be a help for meditation? Yes, absolutely. Anything which calms the mind. Let's say you said to me, well, I love some music. I find when I listen to the music, my heart melts or my mind becomes calm. Well then, that assists meditation. If you find that reading something brings the mind to rest. If you find that looking out a window and just looking at nature. So anything that brings your mind to rest, you should feed the mind with. And then this will assist meditation. Often we live a quite uproarious life and then we try to sit down to meditate twice a day. And it's really uh, nearly as a counterbalance to the rest of the day. But the idea is to make the other 23 hours still and calm, the reactivity and all of that, but no anxiety or worry or idle speculation, things like that. And then when you sit down to meditate, it won't be such a contrast. You'll be going from relative peace to remarkable peace, rather than from chaos to minor chaos. <laughs> Is that all right? Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, okay. Yes, anybody else? So, Mr. Mulhall, when you hear what you're saying there now, it sounds like it makes so much sense when you hear it. And afterwards, when you go into your daily life again, it's like it, to put it another way, say you go to Mass and you yeah. hear the readings. And someone asks you a day later, what word? Because you can't think of them. But you just make so much sense at the time. Like what you're saying makes so much sense as well. When we go out here and get back into the yes. daily thing, to, to draw on it again, how do you draw on it again? Or is it just there? Well, it's like this. There are times when you can remember things clearly. Yeah. So I can remember my father saying to me, if you ever smoke again, I'm going to kill you. 
no cigarette was ever lit up by this being again because those words went right into the heart they reverberated around there and I can still hear them sometimes that happens other times you do hear something and it has a remarkable effect but two days later you can't remember the words it's not necessary to remember the words the effect is still there the effect is still there the thing is that you don't turn your back on what was clearly true to you, what you understood to be true when you heard it. To give you an example, people are often looking for repeated spiritual experiences so that they can believe in the spirit. Now, if I said to you, how many times do you have to burn your hand in a fire to retain the deep conviction that fire burns your hand? You only have to do it once. If somebody says to you, when's the last time you burnt your hand? And you say it was over 40 years ago. Somebody says, well, maybe it's not true anymore. Just stick your hand in. They were just old-fashioned fires. You'd say, listen, I've learned my lesson. Once was enough. Now, what we need to do with spiritual experiences is once is enough. So if you have ever experienced profound peace, total contentment, absolute freedom, if you've ever once felt that, then never deny it again. Even if you're surrounded by chaos now, go back to the moment. I was walking along the road right beside British Bay, which is a beautiful beach on the Wicklow coast, with my wife. And I crossed the road, so I'm now on one side and she's on the other side. And she's waiting for traffic to pass before she crosses the road. And I look across the road and I realise that I absolutely love this woman. God, she's just an amazing woman and I absolutely love her. Now, I can go back to that moment anytime I want. I can go back right now. I can get little tears in my eyes if I want to. I can go back there. Because it's an alive moment in my heart. So you can always go back to the moment. And then the experience is real again. But to share it with others, you can never give it in the same... No. It's a bit like this. Say I was a realized man and that I knew the truth. So I knew it in experience. I cannot convey that experience to you if you're not a man of truth. But what I can do is I can point out the truth to you. I can point the direction of it. I can't give you the experience of it, but I can point you to it. And if you travel that path, you will then experience it. But I can't give you the experience of it. Let's say right now I took a strawberry out of my pocket and I ate it. I can't give you the experience of the strawberry, but I can say it's so sweet, it's juicy. You're thinking, you sort of got an idea of what it's like. So the next time if you eat a bucket of sand, you know it wasn't a strawberry, right? Because it doesn't have juiciness and sweetness. So that's what you can do. You can convey to another a true image of your experience but not the experience itself. 
So that's what's great about conveying true experience to others. You may help them find it, and on finding it, they recognize it to be true because it accords with your experience. So some of the things you're saying, I can identify with perfect. Other people will identify with other things you're Absolutely. saying. Absolutely. So everyone here will get a different... Absolutely. ...depending on their experience. Absolutely. But even the bits that it's not live for us in the sense of experience, if it appeals to reason, one can take it and seek it. Because there were certain practices given, which it was said that if these are practiced, there will be the experience. So one could take those practices, practice them, and then when the experience arises, then the words and the experience will match up perfectly. See, why did the great teachers speak? Why did Jesus speak at all? It's so that we were given direction. If we accept the direction, it leads to the experience. And then the words and the experience are matched up. And we don't need Jesus right in front of us, physically embodied. The words and the experience uniting together is enough. When I was a little boy little Catholic fellow actually a very good little Catholic boy in fact I was very angry with God really angry with him and I mean seriously angry with him because I thought it was so unfair that I had been born 2000 years after Christ and why did the Middle Eastern lot why were they favoured that they got to see him and see all his miracles and talk to him whereas I didn't I got a parish priest for God's sake and I was so angry at this, and I thought it was terribly unfair that I'd been born 2,000 years too late, and I'd been given a short straw. Now, when I came to philosophy, and I took a look at the words of Christ and the words of other great sages, and I put them into practice, and the experiences arose, and the experiences confirmed the words, I stopped being angry with God. I realized I didn't have to be born 2,000 years ago to know the truth. And this is why Jesus said, you know, when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. So, that's the way it is. Yes, anybody else? What you're saying, Mr. Mulhall, is so when any of us are faced with, you know, the big challenges in life, the best way to apply philosophy to our daily lives when we're met with big challenges like that is to change of perspective and see exactly. the bigger picture exactly exactly we always look the problem is external and then we look externally to solve it the wise always say look within there's a story told by the Shankaracharya about a gathering of sages what happened was a line was drawn on a page is that okay and it was put to the sages that they were to shorten this line without rubbing off any of the chalk. It was a chalk line. So this stumped this gathering of sages, except one man who came up and did this. He drew a much bigger line beside it. And when you draw a much bigger line beside another line, it makes this one smaller. It's like, I can feel tall 
as I'm standing in front of one of the Harlem Globetrotters, <laughs> and then I feel like a midget. Let's say your image of yourself on a particular day is this size, so two inches tall, all right? And you come across a four-inch tall problem. You say, this is too much for me, I can't handle this. And you feel overwhelmed, and you say, it's unfair. But what happens if you, first of all, instead of being two inches tall, have an image of yourself as a two-foot-tall person, then this problem is going to appear to be very small. Then it's no longer a problem. It's just a situation. And you just deal with it. So the real key is not what you're facing, but who's facing it. Is that okay? What you're facing is not a problem. But who's facing it is turning it into a problem. And what the sages say is that you are eternal, limitless, all-powerful, all-intelligence, totally aware, unaffected. So, how could that be a problem? But if you think, oh, I'm just so-and-so, and I'm, you know, I'm this and that, of course, lots of things can be problems. Terminal cancer can be a problem. But not to eternal consciousness. This is a discipline, because... When the mind ordinarily meets a problem, it jumps in. Now that would be like seeing a cesspit and saying, right, and we jump in. Well, you don't jump into cesspits, but that's what we do. We see this cesspit problem and we jump in and we try to cleanse it from within. The thing is, first look at yourself and restore yourself to your true stature. And when restored to your true stature, then deal with it. Now, by the way, we all do do this, but unfortunately only in certain circumstances. I'm a married man and I'm a father. So, one of the children have misbehaved. We make it. And I'm really angry, because I, I had a bad day at the office and the keys fell into a puddle just outside the house as well. And I had to bend the whole way down to pick them up. And all sorts of things are wrong. And I come home and I find that one of the children has been doing no work at school and got eight D's and looks like he's going to follow in his father's footsteps. So it's just an appalling prospect. And let's say I'm filled with rage at his ineptitude. Sometimes you catch yourself on and you say, I'm not in the right state to deal with this. And you wait. And you wait till you calm down. You might wait for the weekend. You take a look at this report from the headmaster, could try harder. And you, Gosh, I remember that phrase. And, <laughs> and all these sort of things. And you wait and you wait and you wait. And then Saturday comes along and now, let's say, there's a reasonable father there and you say to your daughter or son, I need to talk to you. So now it's a completely different experience. So when faced with a problem, don't rush to get into the problem. First of all, examine your own state and then let it be a state that can deal with the problem. As I said, you'll always find, without exception, that it's no longer a problem. It still needs to be dealt with. If it's a hole in the roof, just because you change your perspective of yourself, the leak doesn't fix itself. You can't say, I'm a philosopher, and sit there as the rain pours in on your head. It still needs fixing.
but the burden goes out of it, the sense of being overwhelmed or the sense of injustice. Why is it my roof that leaks and nobody else's roof seems to be leaking? All of that goes. So that's the key. Okay. Yes, anybody else? I spoke just about a, a few moments of stillness can mm. be useful. Because I often find when I'm meditating for half an hour, I seem to be thinking for most of it. I wonder afterwards how useful it was. Let's say you were mining for diamonds. What would you spend most of your time looking at and dealing with? Rocks. And dirt. Mm. Rocks and dirt. And if you came across one diamond in a day, you'd say, excellent day. And let's say if your husband said to you, but are you saying to me out of the eight-hour working day, you spent seven hours and 59 minutes fiddling around with that which was absolutely valueless and only one minute with that which was of value and said to you, that was a complete waste of a day, you'd say to him, you don't understand. And you'd be absolutely right. <laughs> Meditation is like that. We spend most of our time mucking around and we get occasional moments of deep, deep rest. Now, because we are very time-orientated, we sort of measure it in time. I meditated for 30 minutes, 29 minutes was chaotic thinking, one minute of resting with the mantra or deep peace or whatever. What a waste of time. But it's not like that. Let's say yesterday you met Jesus Christ embodied the second coming of the Christ for one minute. You wouldn't think it was a waste of a day. You would think it was the most profound day of your life. So don't measure it in terms of time. Literally a minute of truly resting in the self is equivalent to lifetimes of messing around. We've got to stop valuing things in terms of time. You wouldn't value a human being according to their height. Let's say you had two children, one of them was 18 inches tall and the other one was three foot tall. You wouldn't say, well, I love you half of what I love the taller one. It's not possible. It's an invalid basis of measurement. Both are human beings and both are equally loved and size doesn't come into it. But it's exactly the same nothing to do with time and you might have to take this on trust at this point in time is just trust that one minute in the presence of yourself is unbelievably beneficial to your spiritual welfare just as one minute in the presence of Jesus or one minute in the presence of Buddha would be unbelievably beneficial so that's the way to look at it the time will come that the mind will become stiller. In fact, two things will happen, which is quite remarkable. Even when the mind is active, it doesn't disturb. Do you ever watch the rain from inside your lovely warm house? Well, it's like that. You're just watching the rain falling, but you're not getting wet. Well, the time will come when consciousness gets deeper and deeper, and the movements in the mind will disturb less and less. That'd be one aspect. And there will also be longer and deeper moments of real rest.
And the way the Shankaracharya puts it is that in a 30-minute practice of meditation, all that's necessary is for the mind to dip itself into that gold a few times for a few moments. That is sufficient. Say I sent you into Fort Knox. Let's say I said to you, go in there and steal as much as you want. Now, you don't have a great big truck or anything like that. There's only so many bars you can come out with. Well, it's exactly the same with meditation. You don't need to come out with more than a few moments of real connection with yourself. That will provide you with sufficient peace and sufficient energy to have a fully satisfying life. When St. Paul on the road to Damascus had an experience that went beyond about two or three seconds, he went blind for three days. If the experience is very deep and much more prolonged, it blows the system. It's like too much electricity coming down the wire. So we wouldn't like you to fuse. <laughs> thank you. Is that all right? Yes, yeah. Thank you. Okay. Yes. Perhaps one last question. Mr. Mulholland, could you speak more on, on the power of listening? Yes. Well, listening affects two people. It affects the speaker and the listener. So, when you come to a talk, you really do have a duty to the speaker, to listen to them. Because a speaker really can't speak to someone who's not listening. In a way, what is said is determined not by the speaker, but by the listener. And I just give this example which was told to me. I can't remember what the name of the organization is, but anyway, they run pre-marriage courses. And a friend of mine attended this pre-marriage course. And the man who took it, I think a priest, was absolutely excellent. He said that in marriage, listening is so important. And he said this at the beginning. And then, say a day later, on the second day of the course, he had the whole group, a group of couples. And he said, I want half the group to leave the room. So let's say we make it this half. You've all got a partner on this side, okay? So you all head off the room. So then I address myself to this half. You don't hear this. And I say, now look, I'm going to ask them to come back in and speak about something that is really important to them. And they will think that the purpose of the exercise is to speak truthfully and honestly about something that is of real importance to them. And they're going to speak for two minutes each. However, what we're actually going to do is we're going to really listen to them for one minute. And then after a minute, albeit keeping our face face towards them, and appearing to be really listening, we're going to fill our minds with other thoughts and not listen to them at all, albeit appearing to listen to them. So he invites them to come back in and he says, now look, we're going to do this exercise in speech and it's important to speak truthfully and honestly. So I want you to think of something that really means a lot to you and I want you to speak to your partners for two minutes. So they broke into pairs. Each person started blabbering the way, well, I love Manchester United and the 442 system, and I think Alex Ferguson is the best manager there's ever been. And the speech was pouring out of everybody for the first minute. 
and then the partners who were listening fill their minds with alternative thoughts. And the speaker started to say, oh, uh, gosh, where was I now? And, uh, God, what was the next point I wanted to say? And they started to stumble and mutter and stammer and go all over the place. And that's the power of listening. When you listen, you give freedom of speech to the speaker. He or she speaks into the space that you grant them. And if you grant them a very big space, they will speak absolutely truthfully and fully to you. But if you're not a great listener, they only speak a little bit to you. That's very mumbled or whatever. That's the first thing to understand. That the speaker is allowed to exist because of the listener. So your duty as a listener is to really listen. Now, how do you really listen? Never listen trying to understand. Because that means you're doing two things. You're listening and you're trying to understand, which means you're only half listening and half trying to understand. That's why sometimes two days later, you can't remember. Because <laughs> you were only half listening and half understanding. What you do is you fully listen. And what it means to fully listen is to listen with both ears. That's why you've got two of them. One of them is not a spare one. Okay? When you listen with both ears, nothing else is going on inside of you. You're not listening and thinking, when are they going to stop? Or listening and thinking, when does the match start? Or, I've heard that story before. You're fully and completely listening. So always listen with both ears. You can ask yourself that question anytime. Am I listening with both ears right now? And sometimes, you know, a wife can say to you, I want to talk to you about something. And they talk away. And they say, you're not really listening. You say, I am, I am. And you can repeat the words. You say, you said this, and then you said that. <laughs> but your wife is right. You weren't really listening. They know. They know you were also thinking about other things. They can read you. So, you listen with both ears. The other quality to listening is it must be innocent listening. You've got young children. Did you ever read them stories at night? Do you ever read them the same story? They might say, well, tell me the story about Jack and the Beanstalk again. Let's say you like stories. And I live next door to you. And you like to hear a story before you went to sleep at night. And I'm a very kind neighbour, so I come along and I read you a story. We'll make it an adult story. It doesn't have to be Jack and the Beanstalk. And the next night I read you the same story. And the same story. You'd be thinking, I've heard this blooming story already. Because your listening isn't innocent. The reason a child can hear the same story over and over again, and they can have the one joke. You know, they have one joke, and they tell you a million times, and they burst their heart laughing every time they tell you the one joke. Whereas we need brand new jokes all the time. We need millions of them. Because our listening isn't innocent. We've heard it before, or we're judging the speaker. So your listening has to be innocent. No judgment, no values. Nothing. When your child came into the world, to make it your first child, and it saw you, it would have loved you on the instant. And the reason it loved you on the instant was because it had no values. If it had values, it said, just, I was hoping for a better looking father, you know, or one that dressed a bit neater, or, you know, all that sort of stuff. But with no values, you're perfect. 
That's why children adore their parents. Because they have no values. Once they get values, they get very disappointed in us. <laughs> so, if you want to be a listener, a real listener, you have to become innocent. Now, let's assume we had Christ here. And we make you an innocent listener, and we make a Pharisee-type individual sitting beside you. So you're an innocent listener, you're Peter the fisherman. A simple man with no big ideas about himself, does not consider himself learned or brilliant or anything like that. A totally open-hearted, simple man. And we have a Pharisee who's read every scripture known to man, he's practiced them all day long. He can tell you what a sin is backwards and forwards and sideways. And we put Jesus here. The Pharisee will see a carpenter's son. And say, how could a carpenter's son be the saviour of the world? And you, as Peter, when Jesus did meet Peter and James, when he says, follow me, you'll follow him. And the next day you'll tell people, I met the Messiah. The Pharisee would say, I met this blooming carpenter's son who seemed to know a little bit about the scriptures. So you have to become innocent. When you become innocent, you'll be able to get the message. So we have a Pharisee and we have you, and we have Jesus speaking to both. Only one will get the message, the one who's innocent. So when you're at Mass, or you're, say you're reading the Bible, or whatever, when you're in front of a client or a businessman, if you want to receive the message, if you want to know whether the guy is going to pay you, because lots of people say, oh, I'll definitely pay you. If you want to know that whether he really is going to pay you, then make sure you're innocent. What we try to be is very clever when we're dealing with people and cunning, but be innocent, because then you'll hear the sound. You know when somebody says to you, oh, we must meet up someday and have lunch? Well, you don't wait for that phone call, because you know, well, that's the way. So the listening has to be absolutely innocent and with both ears then you will get the full message undistorted. And you will have helped the speaker to give you the full message because you've given him the space to speak. Listening is so important. So, so important. The speaker is not greater than the listener. No listener, no speaker. No speaker, no listener. There are two essential roles and equal. So that's it. Thank you. Good night to you. Thank you very much.